The first presidential debate was Wednesday night, and I've already had enough of this presidential election. Can you believe these candidates refuse to repudiate Trump? The most criminal president in history, the guy who tried to overthrow the government, and all but two of those candidates were pledging fealty to him like sycophants. Is that what you need in a true leader? I hope Chris Christie somehow starts rising in the polls because he's got guts and he's got brains. The rest of them are cowards of an unbelievable magnitude. The people who fought in World War II are rolling over in their graves. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Layla Tassi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston, and we're starting with Ohio politics. This is a very interesting discussion I think we're going to have. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost says former Ohio Chief Justice Maury O'Connor needs an editor, it appears. What are the many, many reasons Yost has blocked O'Connor's proposed constitutional amendment to end gerrymandering in Ohio? Lisa. Yeah, Yost rejected the petition language that was submitted last week for his review. He said that it's not a fair and accurate summary of the proposed measure's effects. He cited at least nine examples in a letter to the Citizens Not Politicians group, which is pushing for this amendment. Among them is that Yost said they failed to describe the criteria for determining political affiliations of potential commissioners. The summary, however, says that it did. Downplayed the significance of outside search firm that will help choose members. The summary says the vendor would assist the candidate screening panel, but the language designates authority that the panel wouldn't have, says Yost. He also says it didn't specify that incarcerated individuals who would be counted applies only to state prisoners, not county jail inmates. And Yost said that these are just a few examples of omissions and misstatements. He said it fails to inform petition signers of the factual findings. Now, uh, the Citizens Not Politicians spokesman uh, Chris Davey says it's really not uncommon for the AG to reject early versions of petition language. This is the very first step in getting the constitutional amendment on the ballot. There's a long road ahead. He says, we think the summary is accurate but we're going to review it with the AG and make adjustments. They have to collect a new batch of a thousand signatures and then refile as soon as possible. This is proof that Ohio's method for changing the Constitution, voter-initiated changes, works. This this is evidence of why issue one had to fail. Yost is right, right? I mean, he he mm-hmm. points out all sorts of flaws that they don't make clear that people in county jails, it doesn't apply to them. They use two different definitions by each party. It was sloppy. And it's he says a few. I think it was like nine. But but the good thing about this is that he's he's making them clean it up. So that when ultimately they do get going on signatures on petitions, it's bona fide. So later challengers that go to the Supreme Court to try to take it apart won't be able to. This is a great system. You got it. You write your thing. You get a thousand signatures. You take it in. The attorney general gives it a sober look. If it passes, you go. If it doesn't, you go back and start over. And Yost has not, to, it, I don't believe, shown politics in the way he's done this. He approved the abortion amendment, even though he's dead set against abortion mm-hmm. because it met it. I, I When I first saw this, I thought, oh, what are you doing? But when I read the whole mm-hmm. thing, I thought, he's right. Does anybody disagree? 
I don't disagree at all. And, you know, the petition language was 26 pages of text. And then there was a five-page summary that kind of drew it up. But, yeah, you know, they – and quite honestly, I, like I said after our inter- interview with uh, Maureen O'Connor in the editorial board this week, it's like that's kind of a rough diamond that needs to be polished here. You know, it's a very complicated process. You've got – you know, you're going to choose six members, and then those six members are going to choose the other nine members. I think you have to, you know – boil that down for voters into something they can understand. And I think ultimately we'll get that. That That is the process. I think Yost played his role the way he's supposed to, and now these folks will go back and uh, start over again. Uh, I just, I don't think you can criticize him. He's done his job. He's a candidate for governor next year. He's one of the few people in office who I would say is doing their job. You know, all the rest of those guys were on the, the gerrymandering commission and all failed to adhere to the Constitution. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Some cities do everything possible to make it easy for people to visit, and then there are cities like Cleveland. Layla, where do we stand when it comes to the price of running a car, and how does that compare nationally? Well, our travel writer Susan Glazer tells us that car rental prices have increased by more than a third in the past year in Cleveland We are among the highest in the country. This data comes from the car rental comparison site, CheapCarRental.net. They list the price of a weekly car rental at Cleveland Hopkins at $540 for a week. That's the 10th highest in the nation. And it represents a 37% increase over the past year. And that's happening while nationwide rental rates in in 2023 dropped overall by about 5% compared to a year ago. One of the contributing factors to Cleveland's high prices is this new $6 per day fee that city council imposed on car rentals earlier this year. That fee is is expected to raise at least $5 million per year to fund the relocation of the airport car rental facility back to the main airport terminal campus. That's a project that airport officials say could cost what I think is a staggering $220 million. (laughs) But apart from fees, one industry expert says that competition is really the biggest factor in how these, how high these costs climb. The the fewer the choices, the higher the prices. By comparison, South Florida airports are just saturated with car rental options and they rank among the lowest for rental rates. Well, Okay, that that seems a little bogus to me because think back to when we were getting the direct flight to Ireland. All of the experts were talking about how we are literally in competition, serious competition for those kind of flights with Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Columbus, to a lesser part, Detroit. Every one of those airports has a lower car rental fee. If we're trying to be competitive, why is city council adding fees to it that make it more expensive? Won't that make it less likely that airlines will choose us? If I were in Indianapolis, this would be my next evidence. When I'm going in to get one of the other airlines from across the seas to come say, hey, look at Cleveland, they keep jacking people on the rental car rates. It's not a good sign. I We were trying to get Destination Cleveland on this. They'll never want to criticize the city of Cleveland because they're all political, but they should. They should stand up for lowering the cost, not raising them. But how else would you pay for that relocation of the the rental facility? Because that that I do see that that would be, uh, you know, that's better serves customers to have it connected to the main terminal, right? 
So I don't know. And the only way I think the but but you don't want to put it on taxpayers. Put it on the traveler. Put it on the people who use the facility. I do agree that that's probably the way to fund that. I'm just blown away by the cost of that facility. Or (laughs) what is this? The the Med Mart? (laughs) Or there's another answer. The other answer is don't have Cleveland own the airport. Cleveland doesn't have the ability to make that a modern airport. We've talked about this repeatedly. If you somehow shifted that to a regional authority and had a regional approach to airlines so that you bring in Akron Canton, you bring in Richmond, you shut down Burke because that's idiotic, and think about it as a region and think about regional financing, you could probably do this a lot more efficiently without making us less competitive. We're becoming less competitive. It's it's just evident. And this is a shock. When the rest of the country is seeing lower car rental rates, ours are going up. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Critics of the changes to Ohio's voting laws that went into place this year say they see evidence that more voters were blocked from casting ballots in issue one because of what critics see as needless roadblocks. We don't have great numbers yet, Laura, but what do we know? Yeah, we don't have statewide numbers yet. Those are still being compiled. But this was the first statewide test of the elections law that the Ohio legislature passed last year, which had a slew of changes, but it required a voter ID from the state. And this was widely supported by voters. It also did a whole bunch of stuff. Changed when you can turn your absentee ballots in. It allowed, it eliminated the day before the election, early voting at boards of elections. So it just made it a little bit tougher to vote. And you have to know the rules. And if you don't know the rules, then you might not get your, your ballot counted. And also, the people working the polls have to know the rules. And the voting advocates say, look, people were not really well trained here. This was a, a last minute addition to the election calendar. Nobody knew that it was coming in advance. Uh, it may, obviously. And they told people the wrong things. They told some veterans that they couldn't use their veterans ID, which apparently you can. And they told people that the license had to map your actual address, which it can be a different address. And so a whole lot more people were casting provisional ballots and a whole lot more of those provisional ballots were rejected. When you say a whole lot more, though, the numbers that we do see aren't big. We're we're not talking about thousands of people or even hundreds of people. And... I I found at the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections, they could not have been more professional and better trained. I mean, they did know what they were talking about. There was a guy at the window next to me who was confused, and I was just so happy to see how helpful they were in very carefully explaining to him what was going on. I'm not sure I buy that this was the hedge that these folks are saying. And we certainly don't have numbers to back that up. No, Lorain County, they rejected 28% of their provisional ballots in August. That compares to a regular 10% rejection rate. But what are the numbers? So 160 ballots. Yeah. And out of thousands, right? So and, and 121 of those rejected were for voters who had state issues ideas IDs but had expired. And then 136 rejected provisional ballots in Cuyahoga County. 42 of those wrote their last four digits of their social security number in a field on the provisional ballot envelope. That would have been allowed before the photo ID requirement. I would just like to point out though, I always vote early by mail. And that's all you have to do to vote by mail. You just have to put your four digits of your, the last four of your social. You don't have to show ID. So it seems weird that there is this double standard for provisional and early. 
But we did we did a lot, explain yes. over and over and over what the rules are. It is incumbent on the voter to pay a little bit of attention before they show up. It's not like this information was not everywhere. Well, we kept maybe it wasn't. It. We did keep publishing it. I don't know if we were publishing it. We did tell people, you know, go vote on August 8th. We reminded people, showed how. I'm sure we had information out about the changes in the law. But maybe, you know, 38% uh, voter rate for that election higher than people expected. Everybody was urging people to get out and vote. So maybe it was people that don't normally pay attention and they hadn't been paying attention last year when this was passed. But you have a duty to pay attention if you're going to cast a ballot. I, I'm not sure I buy this yet. We'll have to see how many total ballots were rejected when it's all said and done. And that's what the Secretary of State's office said, basically, that they're compiling the numbers. They're going to look at it and uh, take a close look at provisional balloting and report back. You are listening to Today in Ohio. The Ohio legislature made news when it added an enhanced driver's license to the state budget and offered details on why it could be useful. We were a bit dubious, but no matter. Doesn't look like we'll see it anytime soon. Lisa, why not? Well, because this is a years-long process, apparently. So the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles is awaiting approval from the U.S. Customs and Border Protection on new enhanced driver's license that can be used to enter Canada, Mexico, and Caribbean nations via land and sea. BMV spokesperson Lindsay Bohr says that the you know U.S. Customs is not ready to proceed. This is a process that could take several years. Five states that already have enhanced driver's license Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Vermont, and Washington, they got their federal approval years ago. But on the other side of the border, there are four Canadian provinces who have actually stopped issuing enhanced driver's license due to low demand. And they say that there are more convenient alternatives to that. So uh, enhanced driver's license are authorized in the current Ohio budget as part of the $13.5 billion transportation budget. Enhanced driver's license are a thicker card. It has an RFID chip that's accessed by border guards that provides information beyond what's printed on the license. And they say it would be helpful, especially for truckers who cross borders. Yeah, I don't, I just feel like the alternatives to this are probably more useful. And this is an awful lot of work to try and get this thing up and running for what's probably a very limited usage. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Worker training programs are supposed to help people find jobs with a tangential benefit to employers to get qualified workers. But Layla, who was really benefiting from Cuyahoga County's Skill Up program? Well, so <laughs> this county program uh, launched in 2017. It's The whole point of it is to help low to middle income residents depend less on public assistance by paying for the additional training they need to move up in their company or to get certified in a trade or to to earn higher wages. And the way it works is the county reimburses businesses half the cost of the training, up to $100 per employee for books or other materials, and $500 per every dollar wage increase. If that training also results in the employee becoming certified in their field, then the county pays an additional $500 bonus and that to be split evenly between the employer and the employee. So, so far the county spent about $2.4 million for more than 70 local businesses to increase their their employees' skills and earning potential and 
in, in a variety of fields, healthcare, childcare, and, and the trades. And reporter Caitlin Durbin's story includes a lot of examples of small businesses that began paying their workers higher wages after the county helped train their workforce uh, better. But the, the program has become the subject of debate among county council members. Mainly, they're concerned that deep-pocketed employers like the Cleveland Clinic have been tapping into this program. The county is giving the clinic $60,000 to train six epilepsy technicians and 10 ophthalmology technicians. UH also has received $250,000 to train employees through this program. Council members point out that you know the Cleveland Clinic Foundation had an unrestricted cash balance of nearly $13 billion at the end of 2022. And their question is, should they really be eligible for this kind of publicly funded incentive program when they can afford to train their own workforce without county help. And really, they probably would do it anyway. But the criteria, it turns out, for who gets funding has nothing to do with the size of the company or whether they can afford to pay for it without the help of the program. I'm not sure I buy the criticism on this because we talk all the time about one of the best ways to help people get out of poverty is to give them a real living. And so this money that they're putting with the clinic in UH very likely is helping people raise up and get, get free of the, the binds that hold them back. And, and to say, well, they're rich, so they shouldn't have to do it. Well, I, I'm not buying that they would do it anyway. And the money is doing what the public purpose is. It is helping people get higher paying jobs and get free of the the poverty they've lived in i i'm i'm not sure i understand it this is seems to me it's doing what we wanted it to do i mean it certainly has has served residents well on average the training has resulted in pay increases from 10 to 13 dollars to around $17 an hour so some employees have have really seen their wages rise um, and uh, and and yes it is it is a very seems to be a very effective program but their point is you know, the the clinic would have to train those employees to meet their needs with or and they're going to do it with or without the county assistance. Is this the best use of the uh, health and human services levy dollars? I'm just not sure they would. I, I we've really? all talked about the shortage of workers, and I'm not sure they would. Look, why wouldn't you partner with the biggest employer in well the state to help? train people. They've got the apparatus to do it. You know, they're going to do it well. I, I just, I'm having a hard time understanding the criticism. Mm -hmm. I think they've squandered huge amounts of money in the past on workforce training that they tried to do on their own. And, you know, when government tries to do stuff on their own, they kind of screw it up. We know the clinic is going to get these people trained. So why not subsidize that? Well, there's the debate. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. This next discussion was supposed to be about tennis in the land, where Laura was going to be a ball person. Didn't happen for a weird reason. And then Laura made a very smart decision on driving home because what this discussion is, is about the weather. What is going on, Laura? It's like we're in the post-apocalyptic era. Cats and dogs living together, nonstop rain. What happened? I it Really, it just, the skies opened up yesterday around, probably around 8.15. And I was at Tennis in the Land, didn't get to serve as a ball person, but did get to watch. And it was 6-3-3-0. Uh, Sloan Stevens, the American crowd favorite, was up 
up when all of a sudden they were like, we're, we're done, everybody clear. And within five minutes, it was just downpour. So I got to give a hand to the tennis in the land that at least got us all out of there. And I was like, I'm going to take the shore way home because I'm already here in the flats. Uh, I live in Rocky River. I normally drive 90, but I didn't want to drive down West 25th. I mean, it was blinding. The rain was so bad you couldn't see. At one point, I'm on the shoreway. I wasn't sure if I had passed Edgewater Beach or not yet because it's just coming down so thick. You couldn't see anything but the car in front of you. And so we think in parts of Cleveland that we got four inches in a very short period of time. I mean, I kept waiting for it to let up. Usually in those downpours, you're like a couple minutes and you'll get, you know, it'll clear enough that you can drive and feel better about it, but it just wasn't stopping. And so many people have flooded basements, sewer systems, the Edgewater uh, combined sewer overflow went off again, third time this summer. And you're right. I mean, I feel like every time it rains, it is a massive downpour with damage. All right, Laura's missing the key point here. If she would have gone down 90, oh, yeah. she would have been stranded and needed a rescue. I would have been stranded and needed a rescue because it was about 9 o'clock that they closed both ways of the highway. And Lakewood Police and Parma, I think, too, they ended up rescuing 10 people. No one was injured, thank goodness. But if you look at these pictures, I mean, the the rain, the river of rain is at the top of these cars. This, this is not just at the, the tires. Yeah, I can't remember a time when that that has happened before. Rich Exner, who is our keeper of massive amounts of weather data, put a piece together about a week ago looking at the previous two months and found that we had had basically a little bit more than double the rainfall. So I got to imagine that today we're at triple. What is going on? I cannot remember a summer. I mean, first, the summer started with six weeks of nothing, and it was great Mm -hmm. and dry, and we are all worried about a drought. Ha, ha, ha. But since then, we have had one after another pounding, drenching rainstorm. I mean, Lisa, you've talked about it. Your your basement has become a pool at a couple of times. And- yeah, it's actually leaked five times since June. And uh, it did not leak last night, surprisingly. I think there was enough lull in between the the downbursts that, you know, it was able to clear. But, you know, a part of the reason I moved away from Houston is that I got tired of being nervous every time it rained in Houston. (laughs) Now I'm in Ohio getting nervous every time it rains. You know, if you look at these pictures from Lakewood, they have inflatable boats on the highway. Like, isn't that insane? Well, we're doing a lot more stories about this today. We're we're also trying to figure out if the garage that collapsed in Lake County had anything to do with it. So Cleveland.com and tomorrow's Plain Dealer will be loaded with information. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cities across America, including Cleveland, are not finding candidates to be police officers. Lisa, what's Justin Bibbs latest tactic for attracting some? Well, he's showing them the money. He signed a memorandum of understanding with uh, the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association and the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge 8 yesterday. So Police Academy cadets will get a pay raise from $16 an hour to $24 an hour. They will get a $5,000 signing bonus that will be paid in three installments, one at the beginning, one during training, and then one during their probationary period as an officer. Um, There are 180 new officers budgeted for this year, but only 30 graduates and enrollees so far. There is a new class that begins in October. It takes about seven and a half months to go through the academy. So cadets with a college degree or military service will start at a higher pay tier. That'll be about $3,700 a year in salary enhancements. 
I, this is smart it, it's because money is what's going to attract candidates. You're competing with other employers that have boosted their pay. The The whole cadet situation where you're almost a junior junior employee getting poverty wages while you go through the rigorous training never makes sense. You're an employee. They're training you, but you're an employee. They ought to pay you halfway decently. This was something I think Bib wanted to do a couple of months ago. But even if you want to raise somebody's pay, you got to negotiate that with the union. And I guess that's what's taken so long. Right. And Jeff Fulmer, who's a detective, he's with the CPPA. He said, this is a great first step to get officers to Cleveland. The city is currently down 272 officers from their budgeted 1,498 positions. This is the very first phase of ongoing negotiations. But 12-hour shifts are still on the table, according to Bibb. Okay, you are listening to Today in Ohio. Do you grow tomatoes? If you don't, you should. Nothing beats the fresh off-the-vine tomatoes. Our innovative gardening columnist, Susan Branstein, keeps perfecting her approach on how to hold up her tomato plants. What's her latest strategy, Layla? Well, so to achieve the perfect tomato support system, Susan says it has to meet several criteria. It has to be affordable, easy to assemble, It has to be reusable for several seasons and then kind of attractive because in her case, it's visible from the street. So uh, she's and sturdy enough to withstand storms, which uh, I wonder if if, uh, we should catch up with Susan to find out if her (laughs) tomatoes have been flattened in the last 24 hours. But so last year, she constructed a frame from eight foot pieces of metal electrical conduit and attached vertical strings to it to hold up the plants. But it was too tall for her. And she couldn't really modify the conduit because she also uses it with her fall holiday decorations, multi-purpose conduit here. So also, you know, the vertical strings required her to constantly be pruning and winding the plants up the string. And she found that to be quite a pain. So this year's method seems to be working a whole lot better for her. She's using polyester trellis netting for supporting vertical plants. And the netting has six squares that allow weaving the tomato plants in and out as they grow throughout the season. And the material is really light and flexible, which means cutting the right size and hanging it up is very easy compared to the rolled fencing material that she's used in the past for for plant supports. And to hold up the netting, she uses gray electrical PVC pipe which is designed to be used outdoors and it can withstand UV light, unlike other PVC. So, so far, so good for her. She says her newest method has really held up well against these crazy storms. Uh, But like I said, we should check in. I've been lazy this year. I've done some pretty serious structures in the past. This year, I've just been the tomato cages that they keep falling over, but not last night. So I'm trying her method next year. It sounds good. This is not your normal today in Ohio story, but so many people grow tomatoes around here. I thought it was worth discussing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura, should Cleveland Heights City Council be charging admission for the circus that their council meetings have become? What is going on in the region's nuclear-free zone community? I mean, I really Which feel I like live in. I should yeah, toss this back to you because you know a whole lot more about Cleveland Heights than I do. But hey, anybody can watch the the fireworks because these TikToks of these meetings are going viral. And uh, so cops have been called multiple times to city council meetings. I have to say, I covered a lot of city council meetings in my day, and I don't know that I've ever seen police called to any. So this is at least twice in one year. And because of all of this rancor, city council has removed the time reserved for its own 
general comments from the end of the agenda. It doesn't have problems with the public comments. People are still allowed to do those. But city council people can no longer just like take up their time saying whatever they want. Anybody that's covered Cleveland City Council would love if that were imposed there, right, Layla? <laughs> well, I was also thinking to myself, there have been cops called to the city council yeah. meetings in Cleveland. <laughs> the, 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 Cleveland Heights is known for being a kind of a radical community where people like to complain and chew on things. So you expect controversy on just about anything. Uh, it was hilarious to watch the discussion when they finally got garbage bins. But it has, I think, gotten to the point of ridiculousness. I do think the mayor, because they never had a mayor before, the mm-hmm. first mayor is Khalil Seren. He distributed the, Robert's right. Rules of Order to the council members when they showed up at their last meeting. I mean, that would be humiliating if you were a council member. But I think it was the right thing to do. Right. Everybody got their own individual copy. They were waiting for them <laughs> in chambers. Like, just, Here's your little welcome gift. Uh, The council president, Joy Hart, sorry, Melody Joy Hart, she said after the August 21st meeting that when they looked at the times that decorum was breached, it was during that council comments portion of the meeting. But she's also come under her fire for herself for a May 1st blow up. It was on social media and it was dispute with Councilman Davida Russell over prospective appointments to the Charter Review Commission. So she repeatedly banged her gavel, wound up turning Russell's microphone off. So this is not just a one-off. It's not just one heated controversy in Cleveland Heights. It feels like this is the way that council has gotten into this groove, that they are just upset about everything. I think they're spending too much time watching Congress and emulating it, but we'll have to see if they can calm it down. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for today. Tomorrow, we're going to discuss an interesting Susan Glazer story. She's writing about airlines we hate but fly anyway. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast each day. We'll be back Friday to wrap up the week.